0: Hey there, guys. So, hey, John here again. I just want to say, before we get into the rest of this stuff, we want to say thank you for listening, for being a part of the Church History for Chumps community. Uh, We've got to find a snazzier way to say that. But uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for allowing me and Tommy to have so much fun talking about something we really care about. So, we decided that uh, after an episode like this and hitting a milestone like 20 episodes, it's probably best to call it quits. Not permanently, by any means. We're just taking a break, probably for the month of October, and then we're going to come back swinging with Season 2. We've got a couple cool new series ideas that we're going to play with. We've got some guests that we've got lined up, some new, some old. And uh, and we're excited to get back into it, but not as excited as we are to have a little bit of time to spend with our families first. So uh, God bless you guys, and we'll talk real soon. Bye-bye. thank you, Holy Father, for your holy name which you did cause to tabernacle in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality which you made known to us through Jesus your servant. To you be the glory forever. You Master, Almighty, did create all things for your name's sake. You gave food and drink to men for enjoyment, that they might give thanks to you. But to us you did freely give spiritual food and drink and life eternal through your servant. Before all things, we thank you that you are mighty, to you be the glory forever. Remember, Lord, your church, to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love, and gather it from the four winds, sanctified for your kingdom, which thou have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Let grace come and let this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not so, let him repent. Maranatha. Amen. Yay.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that was uh, the prayer written down for after the Eucharist was administered within the teeny tiny little book that we have come to call the Didache and i I, i've been practicing saying this stupid word for so long dude i say didache which sounds weird i've said die dash at one point die dash (laughs) like mustache but die dash but it's didache right it's didache yes yes and i'll probably say it wrong before this episode is over but i'm gonna try Ah, dude i'm so excited we're doing a didache episode it's 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 so good man it's so cool so uh I think the Didache offers a lot of... So I'm going to explain what it is. I'm going to explain what it is right now. So the Didache is, depending on who you ask, but I think if you ask someone cool, they'll tell you. Probably one of the oldest recorded documents from church history uh, that is not obviously directly included in the New Testament. Uh, The Didache was uh, also known as the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles it means teaching and i believe it's greek i would i would imagine that it's greek and uh, it might start with the greatest opening line mm. which is there are two paths one of life and one of death but a great difference between these two ways and i just freaking Sick. love that yeah it's so cool um but yeah the didache is a really, really interesting document because you have this text and a few others from the early, early church fathers. that basically give us this really cool snapshot of what Christians were doing in early church history. Because obviously we have the Bible, we have the book of Acts, which gives us an example of exactly what the earliest Christians were doing. But then if you're not really keen on church history, it just kind of goes dark and you're not really sure what happens until maybe some of the creeds and confessions start coming out. But the Didache, Gives us a really cool snapshot of what some of the earliest Christians were doing, and uh, and I think it's it's awesome. It touches on it, it, if you guys were were listening to the prayer, it sounds very much like a New Testament prayer. And if you read the Didache, a lot of the text is pulled directly from or very closely inspired to a lot of New Testament texts. Yeah, if you can just tell based on style, based on content. Um, there's a lot of a lot of overlap here. Um, yeah. So how
1: So it sounds like what we're dealing with here is a, some supplemental teaching yes. from the church in addition to scripture. Mm-hmm. Remembering that at the time this was written, the New Testament had not been canonized yet yeah. either.
0: And depending on who you ask, the New Testament may not have even been fully written when the Didache came out because there seems to be some conflict among historians. It seems like some historians want to say this was a compilation of ideas that wasn't finalized until the third century. There's a lot of historians, a lot of them, uh, and I think a lot of Catholics and Orthodox Christians would agree with this since they pulled their, uh, these historical documents really closely to their doctrine. They would say this was late first century. So they actually, they make some pretty compelling cases to say that the Didache was written before the Gospels were done, Hmm. um, which is pretty fascinating.
1: Well, I think that a case could very easily be made that it doesn't matter when this was written down, Mm -hmm. this is giving us a glimpse into what they were teaching believers probably, definitely during the first century.
0: Yes, yes.
1: So how how exactly was this used? Like, what, what would the Didache be used for in the life of a church?
0: Yeah, so one of the questions that people often ask about the Didache is if this feels so much like scripture and if it was used so much, because this was widely circulated during the early church. Um, the question is, well, why wasn't this canonized? and the the primary reason for why this wasn't added to the canon of scripture or accepted as canonical scripture in centuries after was primarily like this was a this was a guidebook hmm. this was basically meant to be um something very practical and like if you were to read it which i would encourage anyone who's listening to read this there's a billion pdfs online you can listen to an audio didache on on youtube it's a it's about as long as i don't know maybe the book of romans like it's not shorter than that yeah Yeah. no yeah it's um and so it, it comes across as extraordinarily practical um it has a lot of very practical information about um how do you baptize how do you uh perform the eucharist which a lot of other christians would consider communion or the lord's table um It asks questions about uh, who do you appoint to leadership in the church? Uh, How do you distinguish between a pastor and a bishop and a deacon? Like it's it's asking all of those questions. So when you look at the general flow of the New Testament, you see a lot of a lot of uh, epistles that have um, like very clear um author and recipient with a mixture of theology and practicality and then you have the gospels which are very narrative this one is really just it's just practical it's not super theological it's just like this is what you do so what are some of the things that it talks about yeah so uh so the cool thing is where it starts off which we already read the first line um and i think this first line is is maybe the most interesting to me because it tells us a lot about our audience um the first line as i as i mentioned before was there are two paths one of life and one of death but a great difference between these two ways now if you're a biblical savvy person that should ring a bell because it sounds a heck of a lot like the address in Deuteronomy that Moses makes to the Israelites, mm-hmm. because in the end of his life, when he's addressing all of the people for the final time before he dies, he says there are two ways, one leading to life and one leading to death, and then he he exhorts them to follow life. So the fact that the Didache starts in this way is a really clear indication that, A, these were most likely Jewish believers, or they were writing to Jewish believers, or that they were just, as Christians, so impacted by Jewish writings that they had even adopted some of the styles here. Um, But yeah, so he uh so in uh and it's it's broken into chapters much like uh like a lot of uh the epistles well all of the chapters of scripture are but you know a few of
1: these chapters are only like 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 two verses long
0: yeah. yeah super short and so it starts off getting into kind of the big picture morality black and white dichotomy so it spends a lot of time talking about the way of life uh which includes like loving your neighbor um praying for your enemies You know, not hoarding the things that we get. Obviously, not murdering, not committing adultery. It 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 goes through a lot of things. Like it's basically quoting directly from Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. It uh, makes really clear references to uh, the Ten Commandments, and then it goes into what's called the uh, the way of death, which is where it talks about like here's the things that you really don't want to do, and it lists murder and adultery lust fornication thefts, idolatry magic arts witchcraft rape false witness hypocrisy uh persecutors of good hating truth loving a lie uh not knowing a reward for righteousness which i'm like i'm not sure what that means um not knowing him who made them murderers of children destroyers of the handiwork of god so it kind of starts off with this moral uh just kind of back and forth it it goes into uh how we should baptize which it it affirms something that the christian church has done for a long time which is baptizing the name of the father son and holy spirit um it uh talks about fasting and praying the lord's prayer they actually believe that you should pray the lord's prayer three times a day um it talks about the eucharist um, it encourages like weekly gatherings. Like it's very clearly talking about how Christians should meet on the Lord's day. Um, there's talk of different offices like prophets and teachers and apostles. Um, and uh, and then it ends kind of talking about how we should be watchful for the return of, of Lord Jesus. So, yeah, it, it reads like uh like imagine Paul's most practical portion of one of his epistles and just extend that to where it just hits like like 50 topics but yeah. very briefly kind of touching on each one.
1: It seems like it's whoever wrote it had in mind the the bare basics required for Christianity mm-hmm. which is uh understanding God and his law, you know, so you've got your um Loving God and loving neighbor, right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, Understanding uh, how the church functions. So, baptism and communion. Right. And that you have leaders Mm -hmm. in the church. And that's it. Like, it's just riffs on this theme, talking about, and it reads as if they're addressing problems, probably, but not like Paul's, Paul, because he's an apostle, he's a little bit more like, you're doing this wrong do it this way instead Mm -hmm. this is very like this is the way you do it yeah uh just holding up like here's here's how it works and when i read it it really reminds me a lot of um how they would prepare i don't know if we've talked about this yet on the podcast or not but when someone wanted to become a christian in the first and second century the way the church handled that was they wouldn't just go, "Oh, great! Like you said, Christ is Lord. We'll baptize you today." Right? They said, "Well, cool. You want to be a Christian? Okay, let's talk about it." Mm-hmm. And then they would take their favorite thing was to take forty days during Lent and just detoxify that these uh, catechumens from uh, the like the Roman story that they were living in and kind of re uh, re educate them. Uh, teach them the biblical story, teach them the Christian story. And I bet you that a big part of that was using this.
0: Oh, 100%. And that's, you know, this this is a conversation we've had a lot of times off the mic. Like, uh, we, so if you're a protestant in america you've likely been impacted in some way whether positive or negative from kind of the more seeker friendly approach to christianity that a lot of churches have appropriated where it's kind of like it's very come as you are and a lot of it is like uh like the sinner's prayer like let, let me get you the quickest way into reconciliation with god and then kind of send you on your way and this is very clear that like no, there's there's a process to this. Like I think this being a, a guidebook, like that literally means teaching, like I, I would imagine if they had a way of distributing these in mass, like you would you would probably get a copy of a didache yeah. with you as soon as you were to profess Christ, and they'd probably be like, We're we're gonna be going over this for a few weeks. Like th- this is the Christian life right here.
1: I think it shows too that the early church had maturity as a goal. Like mm. the goal wasn't Oh, you're in great crickets. Like it's <laughs> right. it's like no, actually there there's a way to live, and mm. and we want to help you do that.
0: Totally, yeah. There's a there's some interesting historical points that's kind of made here because uh, the Didache, like I said, is 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 a little complicated in that we we don't know who wrote it, we don't even really know what time period that it was written. But what's interesting is that. The didache kind of went dark for about 1,500 years. I'm not sure if you know this. Like there was there was a time when it was written and it was very, very relevant and instructive to the early church. And we know this because there were dudes like Eusebius, um, who I think was a fourth century Christian historian, and then even Athanasius, who, you know, big time church father, they both reference the, the didache as an instructive tool in the church and then for whatever reason, you know, the winds of history often blow cold. Uh, it was just gone for a while. And historians were seeing references to this instructive guidebook that churches used, but they had no idea what it was. Mm. And it was literally... That kind would of... suck
1: if you knew that that was like a <laughs> thing and like you couldn't find it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, dude, this is why we're, we're in such a golden era for history right now. We have so much access, but... Um, basically kind of, uh, in the spirit of the Dead Sea Scrolls, a dude in the late 1800s by the name of Philotheos Brianios. Um, Holy cow. What a name, right? In 1873 in, uh, in Constantinople, which may have been Istanbul at that time. I'm not that smart. Um, he found a copy of the Dadake and he developed a translation for it I think it was originally translated in German and then it was just kind of translated and, and it was kind of came out like hey we freaking we found it uh, and then the the modern world was able to use it again but it went dark for a really long time
1: that that happened in 873
0: 1873 oh interesting yeah so like a hundred and fifty because that was together.
1: one of the things that we talked about last week was um, the uh, like the greek texts mm-hmm. plato and aristotle and a lot of the classics being rediscovered sure in the what was that the 1400s mm-hmm. um when constantinople fell sure. so this is crazy like they just kept digging stuff out of there that was yeah. like man we didn't
0: know this was no true. it's it's crazy and what's interesting is like the people who believe that the, so i i listened to a dude who was talking about the dadake who uh, believes what i believe that most catholics and orthodox christians believe which is that this was written before 78 ad um and the reason for that is because um the the text pulls a lot of direct quotes from the gospels of matthew and luke mm-hmm. um but it doesn't reference mark or john at all which were later written mm-hmm. and the big thing was Um, It speaks of a very Jewish understanding of Christianity, but it makes no reference of the fallen temple, which happens in 70 AD, which which was a huge. I mean, like if you guys have listened to our episode on the fall of Jerusalem that we did with uh, the very esteemed Pastor Palmer, that was like a like I don't exaggerate when I say this, a mini a miniature apocalypse for Mm. the Jewish people. So to not reference that would be a, a pretty huge oversight um and if this was a a non scripture non-canonical book that what that was developed during a time where they were still very vulnerable to persecution and obviously the diaspora of the Jews that would happen after the destruction of the temple it it does make sense that this book could just kind of have been lost to history for a very long time yeah man
1: there's some stuff in here that is really interesting too um, yeah
0: yeah, yeah. Let's 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 go through a couple of the uh, the interesting things that pop out to us. Because again, guys, I would really encourage you to read this. But uh, let's let's talk think about legit, a few. Of the things I think legit, here.
1: you could read it. If you're a fast reader, you could probably read it in ten minutes.
0: Yeah, twenty for people like myself. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, because there there are a couple things that you uh, we were talking about before the episode that you wanted to bring up. So what do you think? Well, one of the ones that
1: um, so I haven't read this for several years although I did I found it in a a few years ago I read a, uh, a book um, which this is a good recommendation there's a guy named Keersop Lake that uh, has a apostolic father's collection of books mm. and so you've got you know like the Martyrdom of Polycarp in there that's where yeah. I first read that story you've got the Didache you've got Clement and uh, Shepherd of Hermas and some other stuff like that in there and I wish that I had known this or had remembered this back when i remember i was having a, a disagreement with a uh christian brother of mine a couple of years ago who was making an argument about the topic of abortion okay that this would that abortion being a sin or the idea of uh, like a child being killed in the womb was wrong or that that child in the womb was even a person, that none of that existed in church history until the 1970s when the moral majority in America kind of picked up steam and uh, Christianity was blended with the Republican Party in some compromising ways. Right. And I just remember thinking at the time, like, I don't buy it. Like, I didn't really have like a decent answer other than like pointing to parts of the psalms for example Mm. that seem to uh give not seem to do give personhood to people in the womb uh but i was just like wow i don't buy it and then it's really interesting like the second article of the didache literally just it's talking about it's uh it's referencing jesus and i'm i'm sure that the greek here is they're just pulling it directly from matthew like you said mm. but it says uh, thou thou shalt do no murder now shall not commit adultery and then they go on and they it's like they're helping new christians understand like what does that mean like what's actually under the umbrella of murdering mm-hmm. someone and it says uh you shall not uh procure abortion or yeah. commit infanticide
0: and so it's just they
1: just make it really clear in case you didn't in case you were wondering and this is something that was part of roman culture Mm -hmm. um abandoning day-old children if they weren't the gender that you wanted uh abortion like we know these things were part of the culture and so they're just saying hey when jesus said you shall not murder this is included in what he meant Abortion,
0: abortion counts yeah no i mean i think we can dig even deeper to that like this when when, uh, when the author of the Didache mentions this, uh, the idea of abortion... And Which, and when we talk about authors things. really quick, I just... The Didache strikes me as
1: something that is like a a, a group effort.
0: Yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah this yeah. is how yeah.
1: the bishops were all talking, and they're like, this is yeah. how we want people to... This doesn't to. seem
0: like a letter that one dude wrote to... I think, yeah, totally, totally right. But when when this is included in the Didache, it's not included in the the... The way of death it's actually included in the way of life in that grave sin is forbidden mm. so this so when we when it comes to this idea of abortion it's literally saying somebody who has opted to follow christ who himself is life and has walked down a path that is full of life and leads to life it should not intermingle with abortion because I I've heard a lot of kind of discouraging opinions from from Christians who I think are very well meaning who really try to get into the the pragmatics of oh well but this is uh you know uh, under under these circumstances or you know if abortion is legal but we just work to get rid of the the reason for abortion and and I trust me like I I'm all for various levels of like. Services that serve those who are poor and who offer resources to those in need. I think the church should lead the way, but I also think the church has neglected that and left room for the government to do it instead, which is a whole nother podcast. (laughs) But uh, but to this, I would say, yeah, like the the way of life does not intermingle with things that involve death, and abortion is a is a pretty gruesome, grave thing.
1: Yeah, they don't couch it under because, like, if you if you pull up the Didache, you'll find uh the way of death literally is only one of the chapters in this book and it's Mm -hmm. just a list of like a bunch of sins (laughs) it's a list of
0: bad things um
1: they don't put that abortion and uh and infanticide in that list they actually Mm -hmm. put that under the here's what it means to love god and love your neighbor like this is not loving god or your neighbor when you commit these
0: acts yeah 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 exactly one thing that stood out to me, which is also the level of bummed that I get whenever I read through uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, is that it it always kind of assumes it's not like if you fast; it's always like when you fast. <laughs> yeah, and uh, feels bad. Feels real bad, man. But I, I mean, I, I think it's really encouraging that at whatever point in time this was written. Like I said, I'm I'm a first century optimist here, but Christians had continued to preserve this. Uh, healthy ritual of fasting and um, yeah dude like I it's one of those things where like as a as a Christian I want to be more in tune with it because I think that uh, it's not just that historically it's been valuable but I mean like if, if Christ it if, if Christ instructed his people to fast then I don't care if it's culturally savvy or not but I mean I think about it for myself and for my church and I'm like Gosh dang, I wanna. I gotta talk about fasting more.
1: I think I saw a thing recently, and I don't know. I need to do some more research on this. I don't know if this is an old saying. I think it was because I saw. It, I think I saw it on some like iconography, mm. but it basically was something like prayer, our weapon against the devil; fasting, our weapon against the flesh. And I was mm. like, oh,
0: that's pretty cool. That is interesting. Yeah, I like that.
1: The church has always seen fasting as like the way that you are like it's a it's a practical thing that you're given by god as a way to wage war against your own sinful nature
0: right it's kind of that beating your body into submission thing like i don't know if paul was directly talking about fasting but I think there's a lot of overlap in what he meant there yeah like just being in control of your sin killing actually
1: requires like some action on your part and Mm -hmm. and it's not something that is just like you know, a choose-your-own-adventure. God says right. fasting.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Fasting and and fasting has a really interesting history in, in in the church history, which leads me to think about uh Saint Catherine of Siena, who would be a whole interesting topic. We won't even get to right now. Okay. But, uh, cool. Um, yeah. Another thing it talks about was uh, one. This this one kind of stood out to me, and I think this was I forget what chapter it was. It talks about food offered to idols and it blatantly says, do not eat food sacrificed to idols, which is to me really interesting. And, you know, my my curious little brain wonders if this was a potential reason why it wasn't canonized. Because, I was just thinking the same because thing. Paul has a completely different perspective on this in Romans 14. He says, uh, submit to the weaker conscience of those in your community that there's nothing inherently wrong with this. Yeah, and this is like pretty prohibitive. Uh, which uh, another person I was listening to in preparation for this used as another pointer to say, "Yeah, this is a very Jewish text. Like this is a this is a Jewish perspective mm, on this topic." Yeah, which I thought was interesting. I think, man, I remember when I first read
1: a lot of the church fathers, and I remember thinking, like, "Oh my god, like, how did some of this not make it into the?" like the the bible like Mm -hmm. uh first clement reads exactly like an epistle in the new testament i mean it it feels like you're reading the bible when you're doing it which is cool uh but if you if you take the time and you really kind of go with a with a fine-toothed comb through some of these early texts there are some things that kind of sift through the top where you're like okay like either something where you're like this was later identified as a heresy, like mm. Shepherd of Hermas. You'll find some stuff in there where you're like, eh, it's problematic.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, or things where it's just like, yeah, it's just, it doesn't quite fit. It clashes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, like, as as much as I love this text, I also think, like, I don't know what I would do. Like, I mean, I, I no one has offered me a meal sacrifice to idols in the 21st century, fortunately. But it would create... In a really interesting conflict, where it's just like, "Well, crap!" Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. like this is a very, this is a very clear clash and and conflict of these two ideas. I
1: mean, that actually, that itself could be a argument for an earlier writing of this, where that, there was like no like if, level if, of correction. If, yet. if Paul's uh instructions on that hadn't been widely circulated enough, where it was like a like a clear.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great point because I mean. If this was before Paul and most of his epistles were were in the later days, uh, and the, the topic of eating food sacrificed to idols was definitely going to be a hot button issue because the Gentiles and the Jewish believers were starting to interact more. It's it's very possible that they made this kind of like an early stance as Christians. And then Paul came later and was like, actually, you guys are wrong. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a really interesting point. I didn't think about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anything else stand out to you from the from the text directly? Um,
1: let's see here. Uh in Article 8, it's interesting, it says, Let not your fasts be with the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but mm-hmm. you fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Yeah. Uh, and then it also says, Don't praise the hypocrites, which it literally is just straight out of Matthew, I believe. Totally but yeah. as the Lord commanded in his gospel, pray thus. And then it just has the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it says, Pray this three times a day. Uh, i think you could read something like this and go like oh this is like legalism no it's not like Mm -hmm. this is just uh pastors giving really clear instructions to uh those that are in their care for like this is what this is what maturity looks like
0: sure yeah and it's interesting that like i've i've heard leaders speak against the ritualizing the Lord's prayer and kind of saying, well, Jesus said, pray like this, not to pray this directly, but in this and, and Lord knows maybe this was 50 or a hundred years after Jesus said this, they're like, no, 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 we're, we're going to pray this because there's actually a lot of fruit in this. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know what quite to do with that personally, but
1: I think this is, I would really recommend everyone listening to read the Didache and use it as a tool to exercise, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, use it as a tool to exercise that discernment uh, gift, yeah. that, that discernment bone, to really like look at it and go, okay, like, what, is this, what does this mean for me? For one, if you read through this and you realize that like, the way that you worship as a church or the way that you conduct your life as a Christian doesn't look anything like this, like that... Mm. <laughs> That might be a little bit of a mirror to like go okay maybe I need to read the New Testament and yeah. kind of see how how my life lines up. Um, but I think I think it's a good thing, a good practice when we read something like this. It's like man, I wish that like everyone who is a Christian who's alive today would read this, not instead of, but before. <laughs> every other kind of like popular level Christian writing that comes out today. Like there's actually a lot of stuff that's been written. That's very easy to read and practical from the earliest days of church history about how to be a Christian. Yeah, And you should probably look to those early days first, not exclusively. I'm not saying that you shouldn't read, you know, the books that are coming out today, helping you figure out how to live in our culture, but man,
0: don't, don't, don't sleep on this stuff because this is like our family tree oh yeah right like this is this is like uh you know finding that old old photo album in your grandpa's attic and you're seeing like holy smokes like great great grandfather dude,
1: we had a family reunion uh i don't know 15 years ago i remember being a kid and going to this family reunion it's probably like 20 years ago and we're looking through this old family photo album there's this picture of this dude from like 90 years ago and it literally looks like a picture of my dad Yeah, like it's like oh and everyone was just like blo- their minds are blown at this I think that that's what's cool about yep. like looking at something like the Didache and I talked about you know looking at it and realizing oh a lot of stuff doesn't match up but you should be encouraged too when you look at it and go
0: wow like, a lot of it does <laughs> yeah like there's
1: such continuity between like what we confess and the way that we preach in the way that we act today and how Christians were doing it within a decade of Jesus ascension it's
0: it's literally my favorite thing because when I think of conversations I've had with people who were more or less discipled by the secular world around them eventually they just kind of realize I'm living in a relativist culture where right and wrong flips back and forth pretty often and i'm i'm only the the world that i'm receiving is just a result of the history that led up to this point in time and and we say that all the time the most the, the most important history you'll ever engage with is the history that you're born into but for those without objective god-breathed truth that is their world in terms of the temporal nature of it and the eternal nature of it. All you have is what's in front of you. But for us, we have a heritage that's been etched in eternity. And I love being able, like, like people will say, like, oh, yeah, you know, this is different from how this generation did it. And if I was born 100 years ago, this would have been my experience with this different thing. And I'm like, I'm a Christian. Like, I look at this book that was written 30 years after Jesus died. And you know what the Christians were doing? They were caring for those in need. They were gathering together. They were praying. They were coming together on Sundays. They were partaking of the sacraments. Like they were like praying for the kingdom of God and for the gathering of the church. Like everything that we're still doing. This is not a um, moved by the winds of the culture Faith or religion, we have been steady and steadfast for two thousand years, and our history proves it. Yeah, and that's like so cool to be able to say this is a sturdy rock. That say it again on. for
1: the people in the back. <laughs> yeah, dude. I ah, man, I I find it encouraging too because when you when you become an amateur church historian. Like us. <laughs> there can be, a like, you can have a lot of moments of pause where you look at periods of church history, especially with the Roman Catholic Church, and go, like, I think if you're earnest and if you love Christ, you find yourself going, oh, man, like, <laughs> like this is so different than how I do things, right? Mm-hmm. And, you, and you go, like, are we, like, just so off? And in some ways, the answer is yes a lot of times. Like, there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that... The church is abandoned about 100 years ago that needs to be recovered. However, this sort of thing is really encouraging to look and go, as the church is starting to form and build in the first century, and they're adding adding some layers onto Mm -hmm. Scripture, and they're saying, like, here's what it looks like to be a Christian. Here's how the church should be governed. It doesn't look anything like... (laughs) a lot of the fat that we would argue as Protestants needs to be trimmed or in some cases was trimmed to be fair from the Roman Catholic church. And it's, it's, it's very encouraging.
0: We've got plenty of fat too, dude. Like we, as, as Protestants, we do. And I, I think like, you know, we talked about this during the Q and a episode. Like if there's one thing that really encourages me about the posture of our, of the Protestant church as obviously broad and, you know, impossible to narrow down as a term that is like I feel like we are looking at history more today than we have in a very long time. And my hope is that, like, you know, I do think like I mean, like uh, we've talked about how encouraged we've been by the history of the monastics throughout church history martin luther and john calvin were not impressed by the monks of their time and as a result the protestants kind of kind of cut that out of their history and for me i'm thinking i don't have the money time or resources to think through this but i would love to shake the cage and have protestants thinking about what it looks like to have dedicated people who submit themselves to spiritual disciplines and 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 face a fast into the mystery of god like yeah. you know i mean if
1: yeah, if I'm being honest, this this the Didache looks distinctly Anglican, <laughs> like <laughs> it it really does. Like mm. the and that's I think that's one of the I I would say a prop I would give to uh, like good confessional conservative conservative Anglicanism today is uh, these things. Um, or And it's not just Anglicanism. I'm just saying, like, it, it sure. looked that way. But wherever you find churches that esteem baptism, mm-hmm. esteem uh, the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. uh, celebrate it regularly, have elders and deacons in, the, ch- in the church. I'd say
0: just a church polity. Yeah. yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Like, when you find these things, and, 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 and there's also attention to uh, preaching Christ crucified and God's law, that's a good church. Yep. Yeah, and that can be found in a lot of different places. I'm just saying, like it, mm-hmm. it feels kind of Anglican.
0: No, yeah, I mean, I, I think it feels Anglican, but I, I think it, it feels, it feels Christ-centered. Yeah, and I think that uh, I
1: can think of a lot of Presbyterian and Lutheran churches that fit in this reforms too. Well. Yeah, yeah.
0: I um, mean, Presbyterian.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You just so badly want me to be like, this looks like Mission Church. This just reminds. Me. I can't remember. I've I've been here before. Oh, church, Tucson, oh, your Arizona, church, everybody.
0: John. Yeah, check out our website and uh, specifically our giving page. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I, I feel you. Yeah. No, I do. And and the the flavor for for like there is a lot here that comes across high church, and I. I I love 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 the idea of taking things like specifically baptism and and the Lord's Supper and just elevating them mm. because I I think that there was I think that one of the most considerable baggages that the early Protestants inherited was their frustration with the way that um the Lord's Supper was almost like uh beyond mystical it was like superstitiously approached that they again it was like a thing that they just kind of rejected wholesale and then we ended up with people like zwingli being like it doesn't even matter you can have root beer and you know ritz crackers and it's like gosh dang it dude
1: so something i'll say that i'll, I'll give props now to our church uh mission church the table oh, okay. <laughs> and your church mission church um that i think uh we don't actually find in a lot of anglican contexts okay is so in article 10 of the didache after it's just given some instructions on like how to talk about the eucharist and how to take it it says this but after you are satisfied with food thus give thanks and then it has Mm. the prayer that you read at the beginning Mm. uh Oh, the love feast. How could you be satisfied with food if all you had was a
0: little bite? A little nibble. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: I think this is a really good uh, example. And we know this from other sources historically that when they were taking communion, we get this sense in 1 Corinthians 2. When Paul's like, some of you are getting full and drunk and the other ones are getting not full and they didn't have anything to drink. That needs to be fixed. They were eating meals together on the Lord's Day, and that's something both of our churches do, just to kind of scratch our own back for a second, yeah. that I have found to be really helpful. Now, what we don't do is we don't say that, like, the pizza or the lasagna that we eat after the you know, after the service is communion. We're not right. saying that, mm-hmm. but we we do the best we can to try to unite those things as closely together in the liturgy as possible to get a sense of, like, this meal, this Filling our bellies with good food is a picture, it's a signpost to the coming kingdom.
0: Yep. Yep. And uh, and there were times I, I I I wish I knew the history of the love feast better than this, but I think the there were times when the early church was not using the Eucharist as a as a tiny little frisbee disc of uh, unleavened bread and a, a sip of wine, but it was it was actually a meal. It was shared a full amongst meal. People, amongst people. Yeah. And
1: and they were able to do that a little bit more, too, because they were extremely strict about mm. who could take it. I mean, uh the verse right before the one I just read says, But let n- none eat or drink of your Eucharist except those who have been baptized in the Lord's name. For concerning this also did the Lord say, Give not that which is holy to the dogs.
0: Oh, yeah. They they, <laughs> they, they fixed were the table back then. Big time. Yeah.
1: And it was... A big part of it was because of what I was talking about earlier. They were mm. like, if you are living out of a different story yep. and you just have an idea about who Jesus is, you're not a Christian. Like, mm. you need to be living in a complete – this is a complete – you are baptized into Christ. You are a new creation. It's a completely different thing. Right. So they also, as soon as they would baptize someone after that 40-day period using stuff like this, the okay, as soon as they baptized them, they would immediately – Serve them communion. Yeah. Because they saw those things as being super linked.
0: And that's what's interesting, dude. Like I I remember the first time I I went to a bot mitzvah about maybe five or six years ago. And those go hard, dude. Dude, it was so interesting because Compared to like if you if you walk into you know throw a dart on a map and go to your the nearest church there you're gonna walk in and someone's gonna hand you a program they're gonna introduce themselves and if you get a really really good like welcome person they're gonna say uh you know our pastor's name is pastor smith he's been here for 25 years his wife's sitting right over there he's gonna preach on this today uh, you know, uh, we're going to have a potluck after church and, you know, we want, we might play some, uh, you know, might play some toss across outside. Like they they, they just want to make sure you are there, you are present, you are involved. Bro, you walk into a freaking bat mitzvah or a bar mitzvah they do not give a rip if you understand anything <laughs> like they're literally singing in Hebrew a language that was basically dead for a thousand mm-hmm. years that was revived like recently and they're just like yeah no you're you're a guest here you're meant to observe but it's also like what i love about the gospel is the gospel i think has those elements of this is foreign to the world around us but it's also an open door. Yeah. So we'll teach you, we'll guide you. This is why, you know, Jesus doesn't say, go and make converts, says go and make disciples, go and make people that you will walk yeah, with. Yeah, they
1: weren't gatekeeping.
0: Not at all. And I think like there are, you know, faiths out there that gatekeep in that there are things that they believe to be too sacred to be made common. What's beautiful about the gospel is the gospel was the most sacred thing in the universe, the, the face of God himself becoming common out of love, but that doesn't make him less sacred. Like, it means that the common folk like us are invited into the sacred, but also through a process of becoming sacred. And uh, Man, I just legit teared up. That was good. Oh, ho- that was the Holy good. Spirit was getting oh, after it. Gosh. Man, that was good. Thanks, bro. Yeah, yeah.
1: absolutely. I, mm. Yeah, that's... Mm. I can't add to that 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 (laughs) thanks for tuning in (laughs) yeah yeah
0: yeah well i love that uh the close of the didache was uh just something that we see in uh in the book of revelation it's something we see in in the paul's letter to the thessalonians it's something that jesus talks about in the gospels and it's just like hey stay tuned i'm coming back like keep your keep your eyes peeled and there's this sense of like watchfulness like don't be lazy don't fall aside. Keep the faith. Endure in the faith. Walk in this good news. Uh, but also, tremendous hope that Jesus is coming to restore all things. Um, I can, I, can, I, can I read the end? Yeah, hey, go for it, bro.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to find a good place to start. Let's sure. Start here. Um, then shall the creation of mankind come to the fiery trial, and many shall be offended and be lost. But they who endure in their faith shall be saved. By the curse itself. And then shall appear the signs of the truth. First the sign spread out in heaven. Then the sign of the sound of the trumpet. And thirdly, the resurrection of the dead. But not all of the dead. But as it was said, the Lord shall come and all his saints with him. Then shall the world see the Lord coming on the clouds of heaven.
0: Amen, bro. Yeah. Well, hey, that's all we got. That was a... That was good. That was a good chat. Yeah, bro. I like this. That was really good. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we love you guys. Uh, we'll catch you next time.